This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. In this COVID remote edition of the podcast, I am talking remotely with uh, Mark Bjornstad, the president and co-founder of Drecker Brewing out there in North Dakota. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for having me. We've written about uh, Drecker in the past, and uh, of course, it's been fun to have you up at our Minnesota Craft Beer Festival. Um, you were on the cover of our Brewing Industry Guide magazine last year, and uh, you've got a fun story building a cool and creative brewery in uh, in North Dakota, making some fun and progressive beer styles, everything from you know milkshake IPAs to fruited sours and the like, and uh, with a really fun kind of approach to beer. Can't wait to talk to Mark about uh, how they do and what they do. Before we do that, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River and Kasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more trust G&D to chill the beer you love. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, crisp flaked maize. Shake up your beer recipe with an easygoing adjunct from BSG. Crisp, torrified, flaked maize from BSG is a ready-to-mash, pre-gelatinized adjunct. Crisp, flaked maize provides a subtle flavor and mouthfeel without a significant color contribution. It has 80% extract, does not require milling, and is a non-GM certified ingredient. Learn more about crisp, torrified, flaked maize at bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at one 800 374 2739. So Mark, talk to me a little bit about your history in brewing. Um, you know, what that pivotal moment was for you with craft beer and then how you decided, how you got into to making beer and that moment when you decided that you're going to start a brewery through the, the idea of how you create a brewery styles, et cetera, and, uh, and how you've decided to move forward and with the identity and approach that Drecker has built. Sure. Well, I'd say craft craft beer and just the variety of styles and creativity has always been something that personally I was interested in. Um, and I'd say at a pretty young age, I had a, um, just an awesome experience where it was kind of like my, my aha, I I got it. Um, I was, um, I used to snowboard a lot when I had time. Um, and, um, me and actually, um, my, one of my co-founding partners, uh, we're out in Whitefish, Montana on a snowboarding trip, and we went to go check out the local brewery after a, a day on the slopes. And um, it was great beer, and it was a, it was a really awesome brewery. But what really um, what, what really shook me was that that was one of my first times actually being in a in a tasting room at that time. Not many states allowed that. Uh, it was possible here, and just to to have that interaction with uh, the person who worked at the brewery and to hear them describe the beers, then to sit like elbow to elbow with some other locals or other um, tourists and just share some stories and to see what came out of that night because we had such a uh, a catalyzing beverage and a experience. That's when I got like how powerful that beer could be at creating an experience and creating conversations. 
Um, and that really shaped my whole idea of what I wanted a brewery to be. Um, and we we carry that forward today on on what we're trying to do is creating experiences and, and making our beer the, the center of a moment um, that is truly a, a, an awesome experience. Were you brewing at the time of that trip, and uh, did you have some experience making beer at that point? So I was I was in um, I, w- I was in college. I was in my undergrad work, and uh, so I, I did a lot of um, uh, biochemistry and microbiology. And so we had brewed, um, we did a lot of, uh, yeast fermentation studies. Um, and I, I was doing it, I would say casually uh, on the side. Um, and then that, that really catapulted that. So in my graduate work, I continued, um, continued those, those studies. And, uh, um, it just, I'd, you know, just like everyone else, the, the hobby or passion got out of hand and here we are today. <laughs> so at what point did you decide to, uh, veer away from a potentially successful career in microbiology, uh, you know, working for, you know, a larger concern that, uh, with security and safety and instead, uh, you know, decide to open up uh, a small craft brewery in, uh, in North Dakota. Well, I mean, I still, I still do that. So I, I went on to, uh, um, uh, to anesthesia training. And so I practice anesthesia, uh, here and I still do that. Uh, really? not, not full time anymore. Yeah. Um, but that's still a, a passion of mine and, um, it works really well with my schedule and, and I love that side of my life and, and professional career. Um, but I would, what really, what really forced me to, to, to want to do the brewery was, um, me and my partners were, we were living elsewhere, whether we were in training or we moved to other cities and Fargo was all of our homes we kept seeing this concept growing slowly in some areas, you know, taproom laws would open up or self-distribution, yeah. you know, avenues would open up. And we, we kept seeing the possibility there and nothing was being done back in Fargo. And, and we love, we love Fargo and we love North Dakota. It's such an awesome community up here. Um, but at that time, um, it, it wasn't developed quite into what it is now, as far as I'd say like those, those cosmopolitan, um, you know, things and we wanted we wanted Fargo to be the place that we could go back to and you know have our, our long career. And so we we decided we could either um, we could either keep complaining about it, or we could maybe find a way that we could contribute to what we think that commu- what what would make and build that community and what we want. And as that conversation grew, we we realized that there was a lot of other people that were having those same conversations about about their passion piece. And we just felt like you know I. Fargo's on a tipping point. There's, there's a lot of things that are going to happen. And so let's add to this. Um, and that was when we, um, we kind of had that moment of no looking back. We're going to do this and we're going to really commit to creating something bigger than ourselves and creating a brand and a, and a community space, um, that, that really builds our community into, into the place we want to live. That is kind of the the beautiful effect of craft beer and the thing that we love the most. You know, it's not everyone moving to a place where there's already giant craft beer uh, communities and trying to carve out a niche or, you know, take business from other people. Um, but there is, there has been over the last, you know, seven or eight years, this incredible movement of uh, folks inspired by other creative breweries in other places and wanting to build that for their community. And, uh, you know, so watching great craft, creative craft breweries pop up everywhere from, 
you know, Fargo, North Dakota to Birmingham, Alabama, you know, to, uh, you know, rural Georgia and Tennessee. These are fun kind of movements to, to watch, you know, that kind of future of craft beer, which is not just about cannibalizing an existing market, but actually creating new consumers for craft beer and helping uh, bring more people into it. Because I imagine, you know, even at the time you were thinking about it, there wasn't a giant let's go to tap rooms and drink craft beer on the weekends with our friends kind of culture. You know, you got to play a part in helping to build that entire idea of this is what we might do on the weekends or in the evenings to have fun with friends. Exactly. Yeah. So as you were formulating the idea for Drecker, uh, talk to me a little bit about how you thought about what you were going to brew and then um, how that may have evolved, uh, you know, as time and uh, your experience in the brewery has moved forward. Sure. So when we were originally um, starting the concept, you know, this is like early 2000s, um, what we focused on was kind of kind of two two aspects in our beers. We wanted them to be approachable. We wanted to introduce people to what craft beer was and, and make it an educational um, experience and kind of lead them down a path. So we wanted to have a rounded portfolio of styles. We wanted to make sure that they were uh, enjoyable and drinkable and we could we could share that. And then we also, to do that, um, to, to make them more approachable, just not just on drinkability, but on the branding side of them too, we, we threaded in, um, you know, a definite story or a brand um, image that people could follow us down. And then the other thought was that if, if we could get people into these beers and we could introduce them to what craft beer was and what these, the style diversity was, um, then they would, they might trust us. And then we could try some weird things and we could introduce them to flavors from outside of the brewing industry. You know, maybe it's cocktail inspired or wine or, um, other culinary influences. And if we could work that into beer and then challenge, like, once we've introduced them to this concept of craft beer, if we could immediately challenge them on what beer could be. And I'll, I'll admit, like when I, when we were coming up with those ideas, we thought they were, uh, we, we were scared that whether they were going to be too weird for people, um, whether anyone would follow us with this, like, and now when I look back at it, like those are some of the tamest things we do now <laughs> is what we thought was crazy, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but that's where we started was to, to try and make this thing where we could maybe, maybe trick people to come in, in the door that like, no, come in, it's fine. We've got really great beer that you've heard of, and this is not going to be weird. And then if they liked us slip in the weird stuff and see if they would follow us down the rapid hole. And I think now we're almost at the point now where we're, we're all weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> now you, you, you do have one kind of major core beer, uh, right? It's, is it a, was it a red ale or, uh, yeah. Um, so that, that's broken rudder. That's our Irish red. That was like yeah. the big flagship that we started with. Um, that literally doesn't leave Fargo. Um, huh. it's on tap, you know, everywhere around town it's, you know, big seller at the liquor stores. Uh, and we actually contract brew, uh, that because we can't, we can't handle the capacity, yeah. uh, here. And, um, so we, we have a, a brewing partner that produces that for us and then we can focus on everything else. And then that made a lot of sense for us and it's, it's been working really well. Yeah. But I, I love that idea that, uh, you know, you make, you know, a beer that is a relatively common kind of ubiquitous, well-known beer and have built up a reputation and a trust factor in that. 
Um, but in a lot of ways, you're right. You've kind of created the customers that you wanted that may not have been there at the start, but they have, you know, built a, a relationship with you and now, uh, they will go with you. So what was the, what were those moments, um, you know, and, and talk, walk me through some of this kind of progression in weirdness. What were your early weird experiments and, uh, how did those set the stage for uh, where you are now? Well, I mean, from the very beginning, like with Broken Runner, it was an idea of like, we're going to use local honey in this beer. And that, and that's, I mean, honey isn't a strange ingredient, but it's not a typical ingredient in, sure. a, in an Irish red. So we wanted to take a local ingredient that, you know, North Dakota's not only like the number one barley producing state in the country, but it's actually the number one honey producing state in huh. the country too. So that was a big passion of us is to work in this uh, local agriculture and food products idea. And then to to, to show people what would happen if you, you know, if you put honey in there, you know, you get this great flavor, but it actually dries the beer out and makes it a little bit more crisp and approachable and sessionable and all these things. And that was, I would that's like the twist we put on, on that beer, albeit not much. Um, another beer that we did, um, you know, like we, we did a wheat beer that we used uh, lime zest in yeah. and, um, and that was a, you know, everyone was really comfortable with like putting, uh, like a lime wedge or an orange wedge on their glass, but we wanted to be really intentional about the way we wanted that beer to be. And so we just put it into the beer and those are some of the early ones. And then, um, they seem you know, so we, quaint now, uh, given I know. <laughs> you know this, this is like 10 years ago that we were working on right. these. Um, and then we started, you know, messing around with like, uh, doing kettle sours and, you know, putting hibiscus flowers into these things and turning them like violently pink and seeing what people thought of that. And, um, I'd say one of the, uh, another one of the weird beers we did pretty early on was we did a blueberry and basil or blueberry and Thai basil. Okay. And, uh, that was, you know, it was interesting and, in, you know, how we pushed the limits on how much blueberry we could put in a beer at the time, you know, which was, I don't know, probably 10 pounds per barrel or under, you know, and it turned yeah. that beer an awesome blue. Um, and then that introduction of Thai basil was a culinary aspect that we, we'd always loved basil and berry that sweet side and uh so that that was a beer that i think piqued a lot of people's interest in in where we were going to push things and i i think that that when i look back i see that as one of the introductory moments where we really started to pull from some other categories and, and challenge traditional ingredients or combinations um, and then after that it's uh, everything's out the window. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting though, to see that it was a continuity and that it wasn't just this like dramatic, all of a sudden one move. It was just this kind of series of, of moves that brought you to where you are. Um, let's shift gears and talk about some of the, you know, cool and uh, current and crazy projects that you work on before we do that with nearly 20 years of innovation and experience. Brewmation specializes in electric steam and direct fire brew houses, complete cellar solutions and auto automated controls for the craft brewing industry from half barrel to 30 barrel systems. Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or just need some parts to keep you up and running. Brewmation has you covered. Visit them at brewmation.com to get started. Also born out of a basement in Milwaukee a decade ago, spike has grown to become a leading manufacturer of premium quality brewing equipment. So if you're looking for a reliable system for home, or a commercial grade nano for your brewery, this is the time to buy. Spike is offering craft beer and brewing listeners a special 10% off all three vessel system purchases while supplies last. Visit spikebrewing.com slash craft and enter the code CBB at checkout. Spike Brewing, pursue what's possible. 
So blueberry Thai basil, you know, sounds delicious, but also sounds pretty normal compared to lactose, uh, you know, fruit filled, multi-layered, uh, you know, kind of kettle sour, intense flavor explosions. And at the same time, you know, today's craft beer consumers are attuned to a different level of intensity in beer and not just in beer in all consumer products, whether that's their Starbucks lattes or, uh, you know, any other food product and not, not just beer itself. Um, I think it's important because we in the brewing world love to decry, you know, or there are certain quarters of the brewing world that love to like, you know, wring their hands over what's happening. And I think you have to look at it in the overall cultural context to really make sense of why intensity is such an important thing in flavor now. Um, but clearly it is. And clearly you are on that wavelength. Um, talk to me about some of your more popular, interesting beers and some of, uh, you know, these kinds of evolving categories and, uh, how those things have developed over, uh, over the last couple of years. Sure. So I, I think like in our, in our portfolio of beers that we produce, you know, we'll probably do, and our goal this year was to, to try and get to a hundred new beers. Um, there's been a lot of humps and bumps this year yeah, and I, yeah. I, I don't know if we'll hit that, but that's, that's what we this pushed This year just for. got weird, huh? Yeah. Um, and so in that mix, we kind of, we kind of believe there's like a, there's a holy triumvirate of, of beer styles and that's hazy IPAs, fruited sours, uh, and, and, and adjuncted stouts. Um, I think there's a, there's a, f- a fourth, you know, person that's not on the metal, um, podium that would be like craft loggers that the brewers sure. are in love with. Um, and we keep throwing those out there. I don't know if consumers care about them as much as we do. Um, so we keep some of those close to the tap room, but mostly it's that hazy IPAs and then where we want to push those, you know, th- that goes down to even like fruited hazy IPAs and then milkshake IPAs and what that definition is. And then, you know, uh, lactose IPAs. Um, and so we love playing in that realm. And, and that was actually probably where we saw our first successes in where people, um, people allowed us to experiment with those ones. And, IPAs are just the king of the world um, for for craft <laughs> sure. beer, and so if you're looking at it from a production standpoint, or you know people's uh, thirst for those beers, um, it's just a bottomless pit to be experimenting, and, and people love. Um, I mean, when, I, I think of ten years ago, it would have been insane for a brewery to have like three IPA. Why are you putting three IPAs on tap? Why would you not just commit to your IPA? And now we, I mean, we regularly have 10 minimum on tap at our, at our tap room. And that's, people get through that on a tasting flight and they're like, where are the rest of them? I know you guys make more. Like, why don't you have that? Like, so that, that's a great permission that people give us. Um, and so we love playing around with all of that depth of, of hazy IPAs and what we can do with those in that fruited sour world. Um, we push the envelope on on the level of fruiting we can do, the combination of fruiting we can do. And then also uh, that's where I think we're probably pushing the envelope on, is this even beer anymore? And we follow the mantra of like, you know, there's no rules. There's no Illuminati, like inner circle presence that dictates what's beer and what's not. We're a brewery. And if we make it, it's beer. Um, (laughs) This is the future. And we're just going to keep doing it. So we do, uh, we've, we've got a couple series that, um, 
we've, we've, we kind of have a progression where we do, um, our normal smoothie sour is called brain squeeze. Um, and that's somewhere in like that 30 to 40 pounds per barrel, which was insane when we did that like four yeah. years ago. And now, now that's, we just laugh at how easy that is in the right. brewery and it, it, but it's still a great fruit quenchable. It's lactose and sea salt and vanilla bean and really builds this sweet, creamy, uh, smoothie in there. That takes a evolution up into what became brains with, with eight A's. And that's the, we called it a double fruit. It eventually turned into almost a triple fruit now. And that's, that's over a hundred pounds per barrel of, of fruit. You, you must be riding the uh, TTB line then between uh, what is legally beer and then what would otherwise be wine if it's fermented fruit. So the key on that is what's fermented. We don't necessarily ferment all of the sugar out of the fruit. Okay. Um, so we're not using that as fermentables, and we would challenge that. Sure. That's the rule on, on the TTB there. Um, and I think there's a... A lot of other breweries that are right in that in that fight with us, um, and so that's where brains goes, and it's just this this uh, in your face experience of, of a true smoothie. This is it pours like a smoothie. It's a, it's fun fruit combinations, tons of lactose, and then a touch of sea salt to really balance that kind of explode the flavors and, and soften a mouthfeel. Yeah. Um, and then vanilla bean that adds this creamy depth to it too. Right. Um, and then where we get weird with, with those ones is in a series we call slang du jour. And that, that's kind of a joke about like, we don't even know what to call these anymore. It's the, it's the, it's the jargon of the day, whatever you want to call it. Um, this is that slang du jour and we call it a sour a la mode. So it was dessert style things that you could imagine with like a side of ice cream. And so you know, we load that beer up with lactose and vanilla bean, uh, but then it's always a, 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 some sort of combination that either makes um, raspberry cobbler or uh, sfogliatelli, this uh, like Italian lemon pastry thing. Um, we do peach cobbler and um, all these other like pie or... Um, uh, combinations in that one and that's fun to be mixing in things like granola and graham cracker and right. cinnamon and some of these other aspects and to really try and build something that is exactly the pureed version of what we said it was on the label and, and execute that in a beer that's a that's a really fun challenge to try and pull a flavor concept or an existing food item or dessert and execute that in a in a beer and uh we we just love that challenge Let's talk. And a, then, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, and I think to set the groundwork, what are your general parameters? You know, for these beers in terms of finishing gravity and sweetness, in terms of alcohol, um, you know, and uh, in terms of kind of bitterness, because you know, with all of these, you can make something that is just sweet, but for you as a brewer that's going to be boring and to make it interesting, even to consumers, you know, it has to have more than just sweet and more than just fruit, you know, building a layered experience is what makes these good. It's the same thing with like, you know, cocktails and tiki, they can have sweetness, but if it's just sweetness, then people are going to feel like it's gross and cloying. Um, you know, but all of these things from, from alcohol to, you know, to bitterness and layers of other interesting flavors, spice and whatnot kind of combined. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, those, that kind of basic framework. And then let's talk, about how you dial in these recipes with these, you know, variety of ingredients and what that process looks like for figuring out how to, to make these things. Sure. I think one of the keys to, like you said, that balance of sweetness or providing a, 
like an insane level of sweetness, but then making not making making sure that's not cloying. Right. Um, and one of the keys to that is doing that on sour bases. Um, you know, when you think about a fruit that you love, there's sweetness isn't what makes that fruit like the most enjoyable thing. It's also the tartness that follows it. And like, that's really like fruit. When I think of, um, you know, like a, an awesome blueberry, it's not just this rich, sweet jam. It's that tart, fresh blueberry. And, that tanginess um, that, and, you know, yep. the kind of like your sharp edge to it. Sure. Yeah. And that, that really, um, whether that's what cleans it off of your palate or eliminates that sweetness and changes it into sour as well, um, that makes these beers a lot more enjoyable um, and palatable. So that combination of, of sweet and then the, the tangy sour along with it, um, and then mixing in those elements of savoriness, whether that's, you know, we love that in like the slang du jour, we're layering in, you know, granola or um, uh, graham crackers or, or something to kind of build that depth and that, that grain, um, savoriness to it, that hardiness. And then, um, spices like cinnamon and nutmeg and, um, cardamom or allspice. Those, those add a depth almost, uh, you know, cardamom almost has a heat to it sometimes that isn't necessarily perceptible when it's blended in, you know, when it's blended into that, it gives you that, the depth and balance and uh, kind of pulls it into all directions and, um, creates something really cool. Um, when you're kind of designing these fruity sour beers, is there an acidity level that you shoot for? Is there, uh, you know, again, is there some sort of kind of final gravity that you tend to find, um, uh, pardon the pun becomes that sweet spot for, uh, uh, you know, for providing the, you know, the right kind of balance against, uh, you know, against that, uh, that sweetness or yeah, sorry, the right balance against the acidity level and the, uh, ABV. Yeah, you definitely can play with that where you think that that finishing gravity is going to be um, that as we increase the finishing gravity or that residual sweetness, we can increase that uh, the TA level uh, on that beer and um, either maintain a balance at this now. Now, if you balance that, what it becomes is mouthfeel. Um, And so what we're if we keep a balance, we can just keep increasing the mouthfeel with increasing tartness and increasing residual gravity. Um, so we, we do a lot of the, you know, like I, some of these beers are finishing at like above 20 Play-Doh. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that's smoothie with, beers. That's, you know, that's what yep. people expect. Yeah. So we do that with, you know, a combination of fermentable and unfermentable sugars, you know, just you, at a point you're saturating what that yeast can even ferment. Right. Right. Um, and so a lot of lactose, um, but then uh, some of the, you know, some of the extra sugars coming in after the fermentation process, uh, you know, so that you're not completely shredding that yeast. Right. Yep. Yeah. That's the, that's the big challenge. And it's a fun experiment, um, fun experiment on, uh, fermentation studies to get, you know, to try and produce a 15% base sour that has, you know, also, um, 15 to 20 pounds per barrel of lactose in it. So like just all this osmotic stress yeah. and acid stress on the yeast strain to get it to ferment to the absolute top end of its performance level. Because when you back fruit it or, or start blending it with fruit, you're going to dilute that down to 7%. Right. Um, and so that, that's a, that's a challenge there. And we have to, we really have to think about creating this base beer. That's not exactly what we want, but in the final blending, you know, what's this beer going to become? Yeah. And so that, that's how we, you know, we look at, I'd say most of our beers are around a, uh, on the low end, uh, like a 0.5 or 0.6 TA. 
Um, and, and we'll cross that 1% for certain beers. The other thing we have to keep in mind is the fruit that we're combining it with. Um, if we're doing uh, strawberry or blueberry or something in there, um, even like peach, um, not going to be incredibly additive to that tartness. Okay. But if you want to play with passion fruit or you know even raspberry in, on that on the berry side, that's going to add a lot of um, you know the, the citric and malic and, and, and those that fruit acidity and tartness. And if you put that on top of a crazy high TA base, you might make something that's, that's borderline astringent. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's more than what you'd expect from that fruit. So if we know that fruit is, is going to be mostly, mostly a sweet fruit, not a lot of acid, we'll, we'll back that acid up with the base beer. If we're going to be adding something that is incredibly uh, potent, like passion fruit, we'll actually back down on that on that, what we want that final TA to be in, in the base sour so that the blend is uh, really enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit more about how you brew that base beer. Before we do that, uh, Abe Beverage Equipment provides complete brewing and packaging solutions worldwide. Whether you're just starting out or are looking to expand, Abe offers brew houses, tanks, canning lines, and more for small to medium-sized brewers. Abe has equipped over 1,000 breweries worldwide and has the best customer service in the industry. Call Abe Beverage Equipment at 402-475-BEER or visit abeequipment.com. That's A-B-E-Equipment.com to learn more. Uh, for complete brewing and packaging solutions. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep-dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. So brewing a 15%, uh, you know, quote unquote, quick sour beer, I won't call them kettle sours because everyone uses a different process and it's all not necessarily in a kettle. Some people are using lacto reactors. Some people are pushing wort into external tanks and, and, uh, you know, um, pitching lactic cultures there in order to create that. Um, you know, from your standpoint, uh, what does your fermentation process look like, you know, in a, in a general sense and, uh, you know, how do you generate uh, these varying levels of lactic or, or just general TA, uh, total acidity, um, in this kind of base beer before you start adding fruit. So some of that is selection of the bacteria strain that you want to use. Um, that can, there, there seems to always be a balance between complexity, um, complexity of the sourness and then the speed of the, of, of the sour. Right. When, I mean, if you're doing true kettle sours and actually doing it in your kettle, uh, you need speed if you're producing at a high level because you can't lock up your brew kettle for that sure. long. Um, if you go to some sort of, um, you know, ferment, you know, souring vessel outside of that, then 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 you have more options. Um, but really, selecting that selecting that bacteria strain is is probably the first part in how you're going to dial that in. And then, you know, these are natural organisms. You can exert some control on them, um, but also it's a natural process that you're just trying to pull the reins on. So we find that, uh, you know, we, we have about uh, two or three cultures that we keep in-house all the time, and they're all several years old. Um, and when we start out with a, a fresh, if, if we have to start with a fresh culture of that, uh, it takes us quite a few turns huh. to get that bacteria to tolerate the speed or that we can get it to ferment a little faster at a, 
uh, at a, you know, by changing the temperature profile that 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 bacteria is normally used to. You know, if you pick a strain that that likes the lower 90s or high 80s, uh, if we slowly creep that temperature up, um, we can get it to tolerate and perform at its peak now at the high 90s. And that, I mean, that honestly almost doubles the time that it can sour the, the same TA. Hmm. Um, so that, I think just being patient with your strains and, and, and pushing them, you know, just like we've done, I mean, what we did with yeast centuries ago, we, we, we kind of put some parameters on these things and drove them to the directions and selected what we wanted, right. the traits that we wanted out of them. We're starting to be able to do that with these bacteria strains. And so you, are you then, um, you know, pulling out your mash, you know, quick boil loading into a, another tank and then kind of doing that there. What, what does that broader process look like? Sure. So when we opened our new brewery, um, oh, it's about two or three years, two years ago now, um, we, we put in a, um, we did a, a custom design four vessel system. Okay. So having our brew kettle that many tanks away from our starting point, um, helps us. We, we pretty much produce a sour turn at the end of every day. Huh. So every day you come in and you're knocking out a sour out of the kettle while you're mashing in your first batch of the day. We brew two batches of normal or non-sour beer and then finish the day with half of a turn of a sour to then get finished the next day. And so having that, having those multi-vessel brew house helps us separate those processes out. Um, and it, it actually brew, helps us brew a little more efficiently because almost at no time do we not have a beer at, at every stage of the process mm. going. Um, so the first thing that, you know, is done in the day is come in and pull a sample of that kettle sour. And then we, we run everything on T on a, a, do a titratable acidity test on it. Uh, we, we've found just based on the amount of, um, the, the different wort compositions that we're producing, um, pH was not a good indicator across all of those parameters. Um, you know, that pH is only hydrogen ion concentration and lactic acid. If that's the primary, uh, acid you're producing is a very weak acid. It doesn't actually dissociate a lot of hydrogen ions. Um, but you taste the full content of the acid, uh, the conjugated and disconjugated form. So pH can just be wildly misleading. Um, you know, on a single beer, you can follow pH over time, but when you're looking at two different work compositions or temperatures or all that stuff, it, it's it's misleading. So we do everything by TA, and, th- and that seems to help us be quite a bit more confident in, in what the final sensory tartness of the beer will be. So the brewers will come in and start a dropper and and get that TA going and get everything ready to mill in that first batch, see what that TA is. Sometimes it needs an extra hour or something like that. So we just delay that mashing a little bit. Um, usually, um, usually with where we're at, we're, we're, we've timed everything out already. We know our, our bacteria pretty well. So once they get a confirmed TA that's in the parameters that we wanted for that, that beer, you know, we, we recapture a sample of that. We keep a brink of that sour. And then once we have that, we bring it up to a boil and start sending that through the brew deck into the fermenters uh, while we're mashing in that first batch of the day. And, and then we finish up leaving that, that beer in the kettle. Um, that's really cool. Then, uh, you know, after, after you're done boiling, 
Um, what is the rest of the, and you've got this kind of sour wart. What does the rest of your fermentation process look like? Now you're, you know, you've got a pretty acidic environment and, uh, you know, you're looking at a pretty high gravity wart, uh, obviously, since you're going to dilute this beer down later with fruit. Um, what does that fermentation process look like? And what are the special concerns of trying to get a characterful, but still clean, highly acidic, but also high gravity, uh, you know, beer through that fermentation process? Yeah, so to usually to do that high gravity brewing, you, you know, you'll probably employ um, a multitude of simple or adjunct sugars uh, to do that, or um, periodic injections of whether it's you know new wort into that okay. beer. Um, just the the sheer osmotic stress that that can right. put on the beer to start out uh, can just be too much along with that acid base. So if you periodically inject, uh, whether that's wort or some other sugar source into that beer throughout fermentation, you can um, paste that yeast along. One of the other problems with that simple sugars is the yeast is going to preferentially ferment right. that first, and then it, it gets pretty lazy after it does that and doesn't want to fight for the maltose or maltose, you know, that the complex right. sugar profile that you created in, in the wort. So then you can stall out a fermentation. Um, if, if you have that, like, let's say dextrose right away in the beginning, it's just going to rip through that dextrose. And if it's a ton of dextrose, uh, it, you know, and it, and it finishes almost like a normal fermentation with that, it might never go to your maltose or barely good right. into that. So then you get a stall. Um, and so letting it, letting it start on the complex, uh, nutritious wort and then pacing in those simple or adjunct yeah. sugars, um, helps that fermentation complete. You also don't end up with, um, I think sometimes if you're putting a yeast under stress, sometimes those simple sugars can produce some pretty weird yeah. flavors. Um, we don't see that when we're, when we're kind of timing it more appropriately. How much? So yeah. that's how we do that. And then a yeast selection in that is also right. something you can play with. You know, we choose clean fermenting, high gravity tolerant uh, ales. We also use a lot of quike yeast in our in our yeah. brewery, and th that seems to tolerate. Uh, ab it absolutely tolerates the gravity. Uh, it doesn't seem to be affected by the acid. It is susceptible to getting fat and lazy on simple sugars yeah. first, um, but then it also rips through that beer in two days and. <laughs> And then we can you keep going with those pretty tanks quickly because it's gotten that far. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in terms of uh, like how much, how, you know, um, of that kind of final gravity and call it say 15%, for example, um, how much of that gravity is driven by, you know, mash wort versus uh, kind of fermentables that you then add into the, the process in the cold side? Personally, I don't like to go too far over like 15% simple sugars sure. in a beer. You know, 10 is kind of our normal line for these bigger ones when we're really pushing them and we're going to, and we're going to blend something else in the back. We will get into those, you know, teens or below 20. Um, but really it's yeah. not a lot. It, it's just that it's just those last couple percentage sure. points. It's that push into high gravity that, you know, we're, we're pushing the limits of our, of our lotter yeah. ton on, on, on trying to produce some of these beers and, um, that just helps us be more efficient on the brew, brew deck um, and then uh, a little bit more accurate on what that final gravity uh, ends up with by, by being able to dose in um, dextrose or 
crystals or any of that right. stuff. No, I mean, that's a, you know, I like that idea of that process of being able to kind of keep it dialed, also understand what you're going in with and then being able to kind of measure things all along the way. Obviously, you know, the ring world is certainly concerned with that kind of, you know, intentionality and repeatability and understanding of how to do these things. And uh, there's a range of approaches to that, but I appreciate your deliberate approach to understanding how those things work. Um, so coming out of fermentation, then moving into a, um, you know, a kind of fruit and blending addition, you know, piece of this, uh, what kind of process do you now lean towards in terms of, of adding fruit flavor? And I imagine since these are these, you know, there's that efficiency piece to it that, uh, you know, using puree and juice concentrates and whatnot have to be a, a big part of this more so than just using whole fruit, uh, understandably, because these are, you know, for cost and, uh, you know, human labor reasons, these are all pretty important things. Um, but also these are all even puree and juice concentrates are not inexpensive materials by any stretch of the imagination um, and trying to maximize extraction from those is, is certainly an important piece. Talk to me a little bit about that piece of the process for you. When we're looking at how we're going to do the fruit blending, um, one of the big considerations is what's the final product shelf life? What's its, um, you know, where's this beer going to go and what's it going to, uh, what, you know, what's its intentions? You know, it's going to be on the warm shelf right. of the liquor store. Um, that's, that's like our, our nightmare on, on these beers. And so we, we definitely shape our process and how we treat that beer uh, at the end of fermentation or afterwards uh, in making sure that it's a stable product and it, and it stays the way we want it to. Um, and so that might be that we introduce this, the fruit at the tail end of fermentation and let, let the yeast uh, take a good chunk of that sugar out or uh, take the edge off uh, so that it's you know less fermentable in there. And then it's also just producing producing an environment that maybe isn't favorable to fermentation or um, through some sort of process. Like we we rely really heavily on a centrifuge for a lot of our things, and we use it not just for filtering, um, but we can we can centrifuge our base sour prior to fruiting, and we can almost eliminate any any um, any bio life yeah. in that beer going into the fruit beer and that and that's not a perfect thing to rely on but there is no one thing so it's it's kind of employing like a multifactorial approach to making sure that this beer doesn't go through a secondary fermentation and right. package and i i so we kind of it's like that swiss cheese effect where you're you're layering up all these things and something might get through the first hole but it's going to get blocked in there and you know right. there's there's layers of these things that that start to catch that those problems. Uh, so centrifuge is one of those layers. What other other layers are you you know do you use in that kind of process? I, I'd say like the timing, the timing yeah. of fruiting and how you do that. Um, and then if you want to get into yeast inhibition or, or things like that, you know, I mean, the winery and cidery world is is huge on uh, using different um, different back end products to to sure. inhibit um, or slow fermentation, um, and that's. I think um, the jury's out on whether that works totally with this amount of fruit load. Well, like um, adding sulfites but, in it to, um, to arrest fermentation. Something yeah. like that, um, you know, or getting that out of there. And that's, I know a lot of breweries that play around with that. We we have two, um, but I said it's like, it, it's not one yeah. thing. It, it's a multitude of ways you treat that beer. Um, 
And then, you know, cold chains. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, extraction from fruit, um, do you, what, what do you find, uh, you know, helps kind of transfer these fruit flavors into the beer itself in the most efficient and uh, effective kind of way? Uh, sure. So we primarily use a puree yeah. products. Um, part of that is that's where the best bulk access is. Um, and there's the most consistent, consistent flavor across that. And then costs come into it, uh, but purees are incredibly expensive yeah. too, especially aseptic purees. Um, what a lot of it comes down to is it's not necessarily labor costs at the size of the batches we're producing, um, you know, we're, we'll be doing upwards of a hundred barrel batches of some of these fruited sours. Um, there's, there's a physical <laughs> limit to just what, a, what, sure. what, 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 a, what manual labor can do efficiently for that. It's, it's not just the cost. It's just that, I mean, that's no way to live <laughs> as a, as a brewer processing right. some of these things. There, there's, there's easier ways to do it, but we, um, you know, we will employ both too. So like we just came out with a beer that's one of our summer favorites. It's a blackberry and cucumber fruited sour. But that uses a blackberry puree and then that uses real cucumbers that we process. And it is a lot of cucumber and we're willing to employ that labor and go through that the real processed cucumber that we do uh, because we don't have access to a, a better source for it. Um, and so usually the way we do that is... Um, you know, if it's a puree that just gets, you know, blended into the beer, if it's still in some sort of bulk chunk form, um, you know, macerating it is key to just breaking down the fruit to start with. Um, and then I think just contact time is one of the biggest things you can do as far as flavor extraction. And that, and that yeah. crosses like every style of beer that you want to do. If you're doing a chocolate milk stout and you just hang cocoa nibs in there, if you just hang a bag of cocoa nibs in a hundred barrel tank, that, that could take weeks to extract that flavor. <laughs> sure. right. And you know, then, then it becomes the factor of, of the tank time on that. So then you could, you could also just like tenfold increase the amount of that ingredient to get it to come out in a couple days, but you're increasing the cost as you do it. And I think somewhere in between and then employing a recirculation method on right. that tank, just you, as much as much beer contact with the flavor ingredient you can give that product, um, you're going to have the best chance for flavor extraction. And so we, we love doing recirculation loops. And then um, sometimes that's through like an intermediate, uh, like adjuncting vessel. Right. And the really nice thing with anytime you're doing that is that that adjuncting vessel is going to be, you know, almost like a concentrate of that flavor. It's going to be, if you have a sample poured on it, you can taste it and, you know, see that intensity and that might be what you want the final product to be. So you can just keep taste testing, taste testing the sample poured on your adjuncting vessel to your, the sample port on your final mixing vessel. And once those two taste the same, you kind of know that you've reached mass max extraction Yeah. on that. And um, like to your point earlier about a repeatability um, and, you know, an efficient process, that's what we're really looking for. It's not just like buy as much of this ingredient as we can charge what, whatever, and, you know, mix this stuff up and, and see where it ends up. We're, we're trying to create processes that are really repeatable and efficient. And then one time that process might be used for coconut, but the next time it's getting used for cocoa nibs. And those processes are valid for lots of different ingredients. Um, so 
recirculation loops um, through yeah. some some manner uh, are really important and and huge for that efficient extraction of flavor. You know, when we start talking about ingredients like vanilla that figure into milkshake type beers, I mean, it gets incredibly important given how crazy expensive you know vanilla can be to get everything that you possibly can out of that. For sure, for sure. Well, we've now spoken a lot about, uh, you know, kind of sour beers and, and fruited sour beers, which is awesome. We don't talk about that much on the podcast. Um, but let's talk about, uh, you know, some of the other beers you make. I mean, we, we do talk about IPA pretty frequently here in the magazine and in the podcast. Um, you know, but uh, from a milkshake IPA standpoint, just to kind of keep the, you know, the fruit and flavor and vanilla, you know, piece over there. Talk to me a little bit about how you formulate ideas for balance between uh, bitterness of an IPA, fruit flavor, hops character, um, even envisioning how hops interact with a fruit flavor in one of these beers, and then how you know using that kind of lactose and you know vanilla component to add a you know roundness or softness to it. How that all kind of plays into to your design philosophy um, and the way that you think about these recipes. Yeah, and I think that that those those variables that you're kind of dialing up or down. Are, are different for every type of milkshake, whatever that flavor that you're going for. Um, so our, our, our milkshake series is called Secret Handshake. We don't necessarily do straight fruit and vanilla and lactose. Um, we're, again, trying to execute a little bit deeper flavor. So we do a lot of things like lemon meringue pie milkshake IPA and strawberry, um, uh, strawberry cheesecake, uh, peach cobbler, um, passion fruit hibiscus kind of this tropical one then there's that there's the fruit there's the lactose there's the vanilla and then there's there's a further adjuncting flavor on top of that too and um that's another variable that starts to either elevate the savoriness or tartness um or or depth of that that beer and um so when when we're looking at that i'd say starting out lactose um is kind of key to that beer in building this little bit thicker, but just that creamy mouthfeel, um, that, that softness and almost sticky lip sensation that, that you can get from that. Um, you know, we look at something like 10 pounds per barrel as a minimum, uh, for, for those beers. Um, yeah. and then to us, I, you know, I don't know where the, where the brewing industry is as far as style guidelines on this, but internally we kind of have to set how we define these beers you know we do the lactose ipas which are just a just an ipa with lactose milk milkshake to us has to have lactose and vanilla um, and then usually a fruit or something in there with it so that's where we get into the milkshake and um, the vanilla aspect you can even play around with that on on what types of vanilla you're you're um, you're selecting if you want that bright fruity side or you want that savory um almost spice or herbal herbal side of that um you can you can really play along with with what type of beans you're you're selecting sure um and then how and then the amount of that that you you want to push through to the final product um and then just i think that one of the biggest decisions you have to make in a milkshake is if you're doing fruit um or not picking the, the hops intentionally right. and making sure that that comes in, a, comes into alignment with the rest of the beer that you're doing. You know, we've done ones with, that have, um, 
I'd say like it, we do a peach cobbler one that we use a lot of Southern hemisphere hops in and it does really well in there. It really explodes some of that peach flavor. Um, it, it, it plays really nicely, but Southern hemisphere hops have that, that, that strangeness to them. Sure. There, there's something sure. weird. And if you put that in the wrong beer, it actually like what we found is it, it, it actually comes through that fusel chemical part of the hop starts to come through okay. and it makes your whole beer taste like extract. <laughs> um, and so it, you huh. get this perception that like, Oh, they use strawberry extract in this. Cause I can, I can taste that chemically extract and that's the weird edges of some of those hops. And so we, tr- we stay away from that in, in some of those other beers. So we'll say we're doing something like strawberry uh, personally, like I love, you know, I love Belma hops and, huh. um, they have that strawberry creamsicle edge. Um, they're a little bit more gentle, so sometimes they need a kick of something like mosaic to drive up that um, that that punch in there, uh, a little bit of intensity. And then, you know, some of the newer German hops like Huel Melon or Hautar Blanc are also really great hops that have these fruity, soft edges, but also have that definite hoppiness to them that uh, you're still going to know this is an IPA right. we're talking about. That flavor comes through, but they're so complementary to these soft, creamy fruit flavors that you're building um, that that's where you strike a balance in there. Um, in terms of usage, you know, are there kind of goals? I mean, obviously, we're not calculating it necessarily on IBUs. You're, we're looking, you know, at a bigger kind of, you know, sense on that. Um, you know, but how do you think about balancing the amount of hops flavor with these other strong fruity flavors and this kind of, you know, big sweetness that's still in these beers? Yeah, that, that again, uh, needs to be considered with the overall goals and flavor profile you're trying to make in that beer. And then, and what's realistic with that fruit or what you're going to try and do, you know, you don't want an incredible amount of hoppiness every time. Uh, but, but then there's other ones that it, it really helps. You know, we're normally going to be five plus pounds per barrel is like eyes closed, not even going to think about that in a normal IPA. Uh, We're going to throttle that way back uh, on some of these milkshakes. Um, Make sure the flavor is there, um, but we don't necessarily want that hot burn or that intensity either, which is sometimes enjoyable and and helpful in those big hazy IPAs. Um, But in a milkshake, it, it, it starts to become... The complexity that that creates is almost distracting and too weird. Yeah. So we we we're coming back to, you know, three or under on on most of our milkshake IPAs. Yeah. For for final dry hopping. Are there uh, you know some kind of uh, fruit and flavor approaches to milkshake IPA um, that work better in that milkshake IPA format than say in a fruited sour kind of approach, you know, or do you find yourself leaning, uh, with ingredients, you know, and pushing some in one realm and some into the other, just because they work better in those different combinations. Yeah. If it's a fruit that relies heavily on tartness to make it taste like that fruit, like peach, um, that's a, um, cautiously, we have to kind of cautiously or intentionally use that beer in a, in a milkshake, um, or, or create a, create a base that's a little bit different so that that beer, that fruit actually has a platform or you have to just crank the amount way up. Whereas if you do something like, um, blueberry, 
in there. You don't, you don't need as much. That flavor is pervasive and it comes through. It, it doesn't require, I mean, it gets more jammy. It doesn't get as f- fresh blueberry without that tartness, but that's an important, and it's an important consideration to make when you're looking at that. This is going to be a pretty savory, you know, savory and uh, creamy beer, not have that base tartness to it. So that, that can really make, I mean, peach is kind of famous for that where it, it, it really just dies yeah. in, in, in an ale. Um, if you don't use enough, uh, or you don't, um, employ a combination of fruits to try and drive that peach flavor up. Okay. Like, like, like peach and apricot are a great combination that actually make peach taste like peach, um, in, in a final product that doesn't have any tartness to it. So doing things like that, where you're, you have to, I, we always like, like zhuzh that fruit <laughs> flavor a little bit with either some complementary fruits yeah. or, um, or where you want that, that final uh, beer to end up. I see what you're saying where, uh, you know, something like a blueberry or a raspberry has its kind of like tannic spice character to it. And, uh, and also the acidity to kind of lend that brightness to it with, with that, with peach, without the kind of, um, you know, that acidity or the kind of edginess, um, you know, you just, you get what could just be a fermentation ester, not just, you know, not fruit itself. Huh? Yeah. So like, I think another good example is like we have a strawberry cheesecake milkshake IPA and then a lemon meringue pie. And the amount of lemon compared to strawberry, it's like an order of magnitude difference that we're, that we have to use in that beer because that lemon comes through really bright and, and carries the acidity with it too, which we actually want to limit to a certain extent. We're not trying to make a sour IPA. We're not trying to make lemonade IPA. We just want that really nice lemon character. Um, and then on the strawberry side, we have to use an incredible amount of strawberry um, to get that beer to taste like a nice strawberry milkshake, to have that character. And then also you you have to be mindful of color. That thing's going to end up like brown water right. um, with with a, with a, even a reasonable amount of strawberry or without using some other color, color modification in there, like you know cutting it with some raspberry. Or I know some people use like small amounts of hibiscus in in their in their red fruit right. to drive up that color. Yeah. Um, let's uh, shift gears and talk about the third pillar in your, uh, you know, <laughs> triumvirate and, uh, and talk about uh, stouts, um, you know, now obviously making uh, big flavorful, you know, um, intense, uh, you know, culinary inspired stouts or dessert inspired, you know, stouts, uh, you use the term pastry stout if we want to on this, um, you know, becomes that other kind of big element of flavor that you all focus on. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, some of the favorites that you find in terms of flavor combinations and then how you, uh, you know, build some recipes that help, uh, you know, highlight these kinds of flavors that uh, customers expect out of them. Sure. So I, I, you know, we love stouts. We love these, um, you know, big, complex, um, you know, thick, uh, you know, even on the lighter, the, the thinner side or lower finishing gravity, it's there. Those are such amazing beers. And, the other gratifying part is the element of time uh, and barrel uh, barrel aging that you get to put into that where, uh, you know, these beers weren't made overnight. They were, they were intentionally selected barrel vessels and then, you know, the barrel environment that they're in and then selecting the time to take them out. There's just, uh, there's so much life and soul into the, into these beers that uh, we just love producing them for that. That's an element that on it, just in its base 
is great just to release just an unbelievably beautiful, simple barrel aged stout that carries through all of this amazing wood and, you know, the barrel liquor that, that was in it, uh, the element of time and the, and the base beer that, that, that lives on. But that's, there's so much pride in releasing this beer that, um, that's just beautiful in its, in its simplicity that way. But then there's, I mean, we can only do that so many times and there's only right, so many right. choice barrels that, that this beer be, you know, to make that beer truly different. Um, and we, we want to, like I said, we want to get weird with it too. So then we want to take that, that base beer and just go crazy with some adjuncts that don't even make sense. But once you mix them all together and you use, use where that beer started off as, as something additive, uh, it's so cool to see where they end up. So I think just um, straight barrel aged stouts are amazing and it's fun to play around with the barrel selecting that you're going to do with that, whether it's, um, you know, you're going to try and do, you know, fruited brandies that it is or, or different types of whiskeys, uh, you know, tawny port stuff. Uh, there's a whole bunch of directions you can pull that just with that's the barrel selection and then time uh, on that. But then as far as like the adjuncting goes, um, you know, even just single origin vanilla bean can be such a fun adjunct to show how different Mexican can be from Tahitian to, you know, all of those aspects. Um, you can even get into single origin, like whether it's coffee bean or cocoa nib, I think has some of the greatest complexity to it where, or, or diversity among those things and, and demonstrating how different single ingredients can be. And then you can just go nuts and mix as much stuff as possible together. And I think sure. one of the most fun ones we did this year was uh, we it was it was released in this group of beers that were kind of a the names were all a, a conehead uh, themed fun. So this one was Narfel the Garthak, <laughs> and it was a barrel aged stout um, that we used milk sugar, uh, banana, graham cracker, peanut butter. Ceylon, cinnamon, and vanilla bean in. And so just this huge list of, of stuff in there. And every ingredient played its part and came through kind of in the volume that you'd want it to. And the beer was better than the sum of its parts. Uh, it, it was just a really cool experience. So it doesn't, you know, if you do it intentionally and you select the ingredients that start to play on each other, you, you, know, you risk running into a flavor mess if you sure. do that, but if you intentionally select these things that all are supposed to have a certain note that they play, you end up with a really cool chord there. So uh, talk to me a little bit about your process, because I mean, this, this is where I love to, to kind of probe in and understand, you know, in the, in the mind of a brewer, like how does that development process happen? You can conceptualize it, you know, in your mind, but coming up with how that actually translates in the mix of these ingredients, you know, I, I imagine you're doing a fair amount of bench trialing, you know, and taking some of the, you know, the beer out of barrels and working on some of the, the varying levels of, of additive, uh, you know, of uh, adjuncts and ingredients into that. But, you know, what does that general creative process look like for you? Where are you drawing some inspiration from? And then how do you go from that inspiration into this is exactly how much of this we're going to use and this is how much we're going to use of this? Uh, and then how does that, you know, even move through as you're adding that into and maybe recirculating and tasting, you know, as a chef, how do you think about um, needs a little more of this? We might need a little more of that in order to kind of pull the finished thing uh, together. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the one of the big points to to think about is 
a general brewing principle where it's good to be exact and very specific and, and, you know, nail your beers on the first try. But at a certain point, you're never going to be that lucky. And the best brewers know that a, a beer doesn't have to start out perfect or be mistake free through the brew deck into the fermenter, but a good brewer knows the control points and, you know, how to adjust for when, a, you know, when a gravity is slipping or, or when, when fermentation is, is not following the profile you want. Where, what are your control points? And so when you're doing flavor adjuncting, it's the same thing. You're, you're very rarely going to guess correctly, but how do you, how are you controlling that flavor infusion? And then what further adjustment points do you have in that beer? And so thinking of the process is just as important as thinking of the dosing or the ingredients that you select. Uh, and then as far as, like you said, benchmark testing, I think there's merit in that. And that's a good way to evaluate single ingredients personally for us on a creative standpoint. And in my opinion is that test batching or, you know, doing those small scale things is, is almost like training wheels where you become comfortable with them and you, you keep experimenting, you keep playing with those training wheels on and it becomes too scary sometimes to even take them off. And I've seen way too many beers die in R and D just because it couldn't get perfect in R and D. The pitfall of R and D is that the scale up is where it all comes to life. So we would just choose to live in the scaled up world and every beer we make is a test for some beer, 10 beers down the line where we might be doing a peanut butter beer here with something else, but really what we're doing is testing out. We know that we can execute it in this beer, but we're going to do a couple trials on the process of, of doing peanut butter in there. And then that's going to help us make this beer that we have planned six months from now or this, this new ingredient. So a certain element of almost every weird beer we do is an experiment for that ingredient or that process that we have planned coming down the line. And so learning from every beer you do to help build future beers or employ future ingredients or techniques, um, that's where we've seen the greatest success. And, you know, and then all of your beers are living in the real world, which is where sure. we want them. We, I, R and D is fun. And, you know, that's, that's a great experiment back there. But we didn't make these beers to live back in a lab. We made them to share with right. people. And, and um, there's nothing better than uh, having even your experiments be out there and enjoyed. Yeah. And getting that feedback on, uh, you know, uh, from consumers as to how they are perceiving it. Yep. And, uh, and then working that feedback into how you do it next time around. Sure. sure. So that's how we approach the, the flavor selection or research side of it. And then the it's all it's all brainstorming. It's all culinary influence. It's uh, you know, a lot of it is like candy and dessert, or um, you know, and then and then our our friends in the brewing community are incredibly creative, and we all like you know. There's you see some weird ingredient that somebody used, and you're just like you know, it might have been one of seven that they employed, and you're like, oh my gosh, that like I had forgotten about that ingredient. And like they pulled it off so well, it came through wouldn't that be fun to try that on like ourselves and yeah. let's, but this time let's, let's incorporate it with these different ingredients. But like you, you, so you take that small seed of inspiration to, to be challenged by a certain ingredient that you'd forgotten about, or maybe you were scared of, and then you, you find a new way to, to reinvent that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, we, I don't like copying people's straight up adjunct profile or their, their beers, you know, that's, that's not fun. That, that's not creative on our end, but there's definitely seeds of inspiration across, uh, 
a lot of our fellow brewers that, that we pull from. And then uh, we're certainly willing to share with our friends too about how, how willing we would be to do that again or if it, <laughs> if it worked or, sure. um, you know. So you've been in uh, in the craft beer game for a number of years now with Drecker and, you know, it's moved through different uh, kind of phases of the brewery and certainly developed over the years into to what it is now. Um, what, uh, you know, f- for you personally and for Drecker as a brewery, uh, what does success look like for you? And uh, where do you hope the brewery ends up? Uh, are you already there? How will you know if you aren't there where you when you get there? Um, and how, how will you define that for the brewery as a whole? Yeah, that, that's been a challenge and something I need to remind myself all the time uh, about what our goals are. And, and we fall back on, on what our mission and our, our vision is for the brewery. And, um, you know, personally, our, our, my, my vision for the brewery is, and like our statement is really that, you know, beer is our craft but, but Drecker is about much more than just the contents of a glass. It's what happens when a few of those glasses get raised together. And I believe that there is something so amazing that happens in a community or among friends um, or you know a new business partner relationship that when they celebrate an experience or remember an old time, and if, if beer gets to be at the center of that, that's such a catalyzing event that it brings about more conversations and, and more remembrance and, you know, and, and more joy between those people. And if our beer gets to be at the center of that, that is such an honor and something that drives us to continuously make beer that honors the beauty of that moment. And so seeing our beer being shared in a community, challenging people's uh, opinions or just bringing about an experience that that's it. That's what we're trying to do. Um, and I, we were given the ability to do that from day one. Uh, and I think we're just continuously, uh, the community is, you know, jumping on board with what we're doing. And, you know, we have our people that love us and, um, that's the greatest success we could ever achieve is to, to, to be doing exactly what we wanted to be doing. I don't know what, you know, we try not to put metrics on that or what size that is or how many distribution markets we're in. Um, those are byproducts of our goal and we'll, we'll be as big as we need to be to achieve the next level of experience or, um, or, or, or success, you know, how we define it. If we want to get smaller someday because the climate changes, we'll get smaller and that'll be great because that's keeping us who we are. If, if we need to get bigger to get more beer to places that we think would be awesome and, and would, would build our brand and, and build our, um, build our network, we'll become bigger. But those are, those are byproducts and not, not the goals that'll, that'll happen by virtue of what we do. That's uh, well said. Well said. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Crisp Flaked Maze provides a subtle flavor and mouthfeel without significant color contribution. Brumation puts you in control. Spike is your source for reliable home and nano systems. Abe is your trusted source for complete brewing and packaging solutions. And Craft Beer and Brewing's All Access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Uh, Mark Bjornstead, uh, Drecker Brewing. If people want to find more about Drecker, where do they find you? Our website is like terrible. Don't don't go to that. that it's so <laughs> okay. hard to update that stuff with yeah, the speed yeah. we're moving. We're going to be launching a new website here someday if that ever gets off the storyboard. But mostly it's you know Instagram and Facebook. Social media is just where you're 
continuously seeing our stream of consciousness and what's yeah. going on and the new beers coming out. Um, that That's probably the best way to stay up on what we're doing and send us a message or follow along. We love hearing from everybody. And every now and then uh, I see alerts for new beers from Drecker pop up on uh, my Tavor app. So, uh, you know, some people that might not be in your direct local markets can still uh, taste them from time to time using some uh, some opportunities like it, that, too. Huh? It's just amazing. I think the craft beer world we live in now where our, you know, a, a, a group like Tavor putting out this app and, and shipping it across the country. That's an avenue that breweries couldn't even dreamed about right. years ago. And yeah, we love Tavor. And um, if they cover people's area, check them out. We um, we send Tavor a lot of beer, um, but they, you know, they go through it fast. They've got a great a great fan base (laughs) for sure for sure well mark uh thanks for joining me on the podcast uh cheers cheers to you this has been great thanks this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craft beer brew